Thanks for joining us today for the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast, a place where trauma, hardship, and challenge meet faith and hope for the future. Here is your host, Jill Riley. Welcome to Post Traumatic Faith. Season three has arrived. I am so excited to share with you this season new guests, new topics, and some great conversations. Thank you so much for joining us, and here's today's guest. Welcome to Post Traumatic Faith. This is Jill Riley, and today I'm excited to welcome from New Orleans, Elizabeth Pace. How are you? Hey, Jill. I have been looking forward to this for some time, so I'm really happy to be here. Me too. Now, do you go by Beth or do you go by Elizabeth? Call me Beth. I'll call you Beth. All right. How is life in New Orleans right now? Um, you know, it's beautiful. Um, the season is changing, which means we're getting some nice cool weather, but that also means that allergies for folks that suffer are acting up. So I'm like really feeling like I'm in touch with my mortality over the last couple of days. (laughs) That's all right. Um, and I talk a lot for my profession. So, um, I've got a big glass of water and I'm, I'm ready to go. So ready to go. All right. So introduce yourself to us just a little bit and tell, tell us a little bit about the work that you do. Sure. Uh, So as Jill already said, my name is Elizabeth Pace. I usually am called Beth, uh, but certainly respond to Elizabeth. I'm a licensed professional counselor supervisor in the state of Louisiana, uh, where I have worked in clinical practice for over a decade, about 12 years. And I was in the 10th grade when I was giving, I've got to assume bad advice to a friend at a party. And I was, they were like, you're so good at this. You should be a psychologist. And I was like, yeah, I will. You know, I feel very lucky that um, for a long time, I was like, this is what I'm going to do with my life. And lo and behold, not only am I doing what I dreamed of, I really love it. Um, I would hope that I have a little more wisdom today than I did when I was like 16 years old giving, I would, I'm sure like opinions, not like wisdom. (laughs) to that other teenager who was like, oh, you're a good listener. Um, And, you know, apropos of what I do today in my my clinical practice, I really specialize pretty specifically with um, complex post-traumatic stress disorder, frankly, because I love a challenge. And also because in my early practice, um, I, I knew a lot about addictions and I knew a lot about codependency. And so I felt really equipped to be working in private practice, which I was, but I kept running into these particular types of clients. And I think you're going to relate to this, Jill, because Lord knows I do. Um, And we would, we could talk rationally about why it didn't actually make sense that they were the worst person on the planet. I was like, look, the odds are just not in your favor. Okay. The odds are one in 7.5 billion. They'd be like, yeah, Beth, rationally in my head, I understand but there's nothing you can do to touch mm-hmm. the truth of that. <coughs> excuse me, in my body. Yeah. <coughs> mm. <coughs> excuse me. That is okay. That's why we have editing. Thank goodness. I'm on. Yeah, I'm on the other side of these allergies, getting a little better. But yeah. <coughs> excuse me. Okay. I think I'm through it. And, and I wanted to help, like I wanted to help these people and it seemed almost like nothing I could do that would appeal to their intellect helped. Um, and so I began to realize that I needed a lot more clinical training. Well, and complex PTSD, um, you know, it, it it's interesting. We're a little bit more familiar with PTSD, but when people start talking about um, complex compound, you know, all of those kinds of PTSD, it seems like um, it, it, it all of a sudden it's a whole nother animal. I mean, we could talk about the differences of it and I hope we do, but um, it, it is a whole nother animal, right? Well, yeah, we would, we could just as well describe it as complicated post-traumatic stress disorder and what I found was that traditional talk therapy just wasn't that helpful for my clients. Um, and sometimes it actually made them feel worse because there would be good insights shared or uh, good information received. And then two weeks later, they'd come back and I'd go, did you try that thing we talked about? And they're like, no. And it was actually cueing shame, but it was because we're talking about like an overactive nervous system that was freezing this person in time when it came time to say, talk to their, um, their partner about 
taking turns doing the dishes or something really mundane. Right. right. And so I, I became not really intentionally a somatic therapist. And now really what I do the most is use very gentle somatic therapies to help release the stored trauma in the bodies mm-hmm. that comes from having um, complex, chronic, confusing, stressful, um, unstable circumstances, usually stemming from childhood. Right. Um, so tell them just, Let's just go there. The differences between PTSD and complex PTSD. Give me the top five differences. Oh boy, that's so juicy. Um, and of course, like my own imposter syndrome is like, but then Jill will find out you're not an expert. <laughs> okay, so, okay, so um, with post-traumatic stress disorder, you can identify these symptom clusters Um and they're, they're similar because they, they go with both. So yeah, I actually have like top five PTSD is caused by a single traumatic event. So things that are tailored for PTSD don't always work for CPTSD because someone could come into the office and say, I'm here to work on the one car accident that changed everything, mm-hmm. but that's the only thing in their life that ever, um, was hurtful or harmful blows my mind, but those people, you know, those people exist. One of the other ways, and this is not like diagnostic. This is more like, um, colloquially. One of the other ways you can tell the difference between CPTSD and PTSD, ask someone with PTSD who the nurturing, protective, wise, and spiritual figures are in their life. And they will name for you their parents. Okay. So, so, okay. So PTSD caused by a single traumatic event is recognized by the diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders as an official diagnosis, um, comes with it. Things like hypervigilance, um, high threat response, um, anxious, feeling easily startled nightmares, flashbacks. Those are the two commonalities, right? But CPTSD is usually caused by long lasting trauma that continues and repeats for months and even years. It usually starts developmentally as a result of childhood trauma and is almost impossible to recognize as a distinct condition in the DSM because it can mimic so many other mental health disorders, which is why for a lot of folks with CPTSD, it's really hard to get a good diagnosis. They'll come to me like, I've got borderline personality disorder. I've got dissociative identity disorder. I've also got anxiety, but I've also got rheumatoid arthritis. And I've also got major depressive disorder. Um, And I have a substance addiction. And so people are just throwing all of this at the present day symptoms, all these diagnoses at the present day symptoms, but no one has yet gone, what's the root? What's the root? Where's where's the trauma? That's because right. It's there somewhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think um, for those of us who have done a lot of reading or have a lived in experience with that, you know, you just, you look at the two and they're really apples and oranges. Um, but because, because of the just tack on a word, it becomes a whole different animal, <laughs> you yeah. know, that, that seems kind of odd, but it, but it really is. And, and for me, as one who has complex PTSD, it took a long-term hospitalization and, and some serious diagnostics to figure this out accurately. I was lucky enough to um, be in a place at a safe place for that to happen, but yeah. not everybody has that kind of, that kind of um, resource at their availability. Well, and Jill, waking up is painful. Mm-hmm. Essentially what we've done is put, put these time capsules of memories, sensations, core beliefs, um, the active threat response. And then like what's stored in our nervous system in like frozen in time in like strata. So mm-hmm. when all of a sudden the penny drops for you and it finally like cracks at least that first layer of denial open, there is no pain like it mm-hmm. because we've, you've been going through life. And when I say we, I mean, we, me too, you go through life going, I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. I'm functioning. 
I, I literally grew up and this is part, we're going to talk a little bit about my upbringing here in a minute, but I grew up believing that the best life was going to get was that other people thought you were doing great. So the only thing that actually matters is how you look on the outside. Right. Right. Having an internal life or an internal spiritual life. Um, you know, my family really thought we had our bases covered because we were going to Southern Baptist church all the time. And I'm not clapping into my microphone for emphasis for our listeners. <laughs> help. But if you can imagine me on a Zoom call with Jill, like silently <laughs> slapping for emphasis all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, talk to me a little bit about um, let's let's detour back to our list of questions here. What was talk to me about life growing up? What was it like for you? Um, my, both of my parents are the children of world war II veterans. Um, my father's father was, um, an extremely violent alcoholic. Okay. And there was a lot of pain and trauma in my mother's upbringing. And what that meant was at least as, as far as I can reflect to you, um, I love my mother and she's in, she's in a really gentle and beautiful version of her own recovery, which means we can have conversations about my upbringing, which I never thought were going to be possible in my lifetime. So, you know, like God is good. Thank you. Like I never thought that was going to happen for me. Um, but what that meant, or, or the, one of the things I like to explain to my clients a lot is if the bar from your own parenting is so low that if the only thing you're doing differently is not disappearing six months out of the year on an alcoholic bender, you can lay your head on your pillow at night and go, I'm a really good dad. Or if you're not like this level, like a high level of physically abusive towards your kids, the way that your mother was to you, then you can go, I'm definitely mothering comparatively better than the way I got mothered. So I think this is one of the reasons that I hold deep compassion for the intergenerational nature of, of CPTSD in this trauma. Yeah. Because it's confusing to be right there in the middle too, because your children are looking at you and saying things like you're hurting me or I'm scared of you. And you know how bad you had it. So you have the audacity to look at your child and go, don't you know how lucky you are? Don't you know how grateful you should be? And literally, of course, these children do not because they have no basis for comparison. Only that parent who's stuck in the middle does. Right. Which is why their inconceivable, confusing behavior makes total sense to them. Right. Right. And why, when you're, they're questioned about that, it is confusing to them also, because it feels like you had everything you had, you had what you needed. Yes. Well, and one more thing I'll add about the intergenerational nature of this is if you want to think about a short hundred years ago uh, in human history, we're talking about like right around the time of the great depression and world war two, this was a terrible time for everybody. And so if those parents were essentially imbuing their kids with this idea, life is good when you have enough financial stability. Right. So then those parents in like the, you know, are born around the fifties, they're raising kids in the 80s, 70s, 80s, and 90s and going, what, wait, you want to talk about how you feel? I, I paid for your college. I don't owe you nothing. Don't you know? like, and literally because we are, we are also suffering in this way from the ideals of like the, the best life is supposed to get for the generation before us. Mm-hmm. So even today, and I'm, you know, I'm an adult um, and I teach graduate students who are a decade and some change younger than me. And even I am like, you guys are too emotional. <laughs> As someone who is a mental health professional who works on helping people unlock their feelings all the time, even in 15 years of gap, there's like generational differences, Yeah, which is really so astounding to me. Yeah, that's, um, I I think getting into that, there's a whole rabbit trail there, but I think um, getting into that, talking about how the generations have been affected by major world events and 
and then what the core beliefs that come out of that are is really fascinating. Um, so um, go back to the part about um, about faith and and church and what part did faith play in your upbringing? Obviously, a huge part if, since you were mm-hmm. in the church and the you know emphatic all the time, which I was too, by the way. Um, yeah. So <laughs> so talk to me a little bit about about faith in your family. Um, faith in my family was filtered through sin, shame, hellfire, and brimstone. And so that, um, and I recently just found out from my podcast counterpart, Jill, sin is an archery term. The etymology of that word is it's just an archery term that means to have missed the mark. That's all it means. I didn't know that, but like we, we imbue it with like shame and guilt and low self-worth and all of this stuff. And um, failure and failure. Yes. And so, you know, church for our family was hugely about community, which I think is really great. Mm-hmm. But the issue, um, the issue was my mother was the disciplinarian and she had a lot of rage in her and, um, because of her own traumatic upbringing. And so, uh, Louise Hay, who I love, who's a really amazing author, may she rest in peace. Um, and she, she writes in her book, You Can Heal Your Life, that when you're three, your concept of God and your mother are indistinguishable because your mother or like your, your most primary caretaker is the most powerful being in the universe to you. Mm-hmm. So if your mother is angry, smothering, distant, judgmental, punishing, or whatever, then that's your concept of like higher power. Absolutely. And then in my mother's case, she chose a church that I believe fit her, um, fit her, her view of sin, shame, hellfire, uh, punishment. And my dad kind of like just went along for it. Uh, but I, in hindsight, I don't believe that he really bought any of it. Um, and being in church all the time also meant there was like this really, uh, performative aspect of that. So like being a good church family. Um, and so we went to church all the time. There wasn't really any choice around that. And like, I love Christmas. I love Christmas carols. I love performing solos in, uh, church, like church choir, all that stuff. Like, so I was also getting some of these like needs to get attention and accolades met through church. Um, but it was all tangled up really deeply with, um, I went to a church that does not um, does not accept like queerness as um, like people who are gay are, aren't really like able to be loved by God uh, people, you know, so I believe I was in the seventh grade when we were in Sunday school class and someone was like, I'd like you to sign this commitment card saying that you're not going to have sex until you're married. But there's a peer pressure aspect of it such that like all of these seventh grade girls and our Sunday school teacher, who's my friend's mom, it's like everybody's in there, like sitting in this like discomfort soup. So if I'm in the seventh grade, that puts my sister, she's five years older than me. Okay. She's somewhere else. Oh, I must be younger than seventh grade then. Okay. So she's somewhere else, or maybe in the 10th, t- 12th grade, someone's trying to get her to sign that. And she goes, no way. <laughs> yeah. The purity, the purity culture is, um, Boy, that is a hot topic. Have you uh, follow? Have you heard the? I think the Bible for Normal People did a podcast on the purity culture, and it's very, very good. That sounds so good. Um, if your listeners like this sort of stuff, uh, Trixie Mattel, who's my favorite drag queen, uh, watches does a reaction video of these two girls who are who have a YouTube channel, and it's about how to wear makeup in a God honoring way. Like it's, it's just everywhere, right? Like <laughs> you can't wow. see Jill's face, everyone. I can see Jill's face. And she just went, oh, like we're both just like, oh, great. Um, and so what that also meant though, when my parents got divorced and it became my choice to go to church, I had already conflated church with being judged, uh, with being sinful. Cause I started drinking very young as a teenager to cope with trauma. I understand now. Um, but you know, it felt pretty terrible to go to church on Sunday with a hangover as like a 16 year old child. And what my dad was like, then you don't have to go. And so I stopped going and I got really disconnected from faith. Um, 
or a faith that works for a very long time. Um, and I was mad. I was mad at the church that I went to. I was really mad at my mother. I had a lot of rage and I had a lot of anger and grief underneath all of that, that I had to work through. Um, what was the anger at, um, church and presumably organized religion? What was the anger about? The judgment, the sensation, um, of, of, as you're talking about like purity, right. Um, you're not really allowed to ask questions, um, or that like happiness means, um, the, the, the weak need joy that you feel of the bonded servitude to, um, Jesus Christ. And I, I felt rejected as soon as I didn't feel good enough. Right. So in my mind, and I don't know how much of that is true. You know, my mother still goes to that church. She loves that church. And sometimes I will go to that church with her when I'm home. And something that recently struck me the last time I was at, you know, this Southern, this large Southern Baptist church in the state of Louisiana is the sincerity is what makes me feel so afraid because these people both love me and think that queers are going to hell. Mm -hmm. And there's a duality there. That's like frightening for me because if I say, okay, so if I'm queer, do you still love me? How is that? Or do I have to be, I need to be a particular way and then I can be lovable. And that for me feels like transactional love. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, I can't remember what, what his name is. I believe he's like the Bishop of the, Unitarian Universalist Church right now, and he's oft quoted as saying, "If it's not about love, it's not about God." Hmm. Yeah, yeah. And you know, again, I feel like I'm, I'm realizing right now that we could have a four-hour podcast and talk about you know 15 different topics and enjoy ourselves. But <laughs> but um, yeah, I think the church has done a horrible job at, in a lot of, in a lot of categories at communicating love and what love can and can and can't be. And, um, but I, I do agree that the, the feeling of transactional, um, arrangement on how I can or cannot be loved by the church is a horrible feeling when you feel like you have failed yourself and you've failed God and you've, you've maligned, you know, everything that is good about your character by drinking. You know, I mean, I was, I was raised that way. I was raised that, you know, people who drink aren't Christians and they're going to go to hell. Right. Do you, are you familiar at all with heaven's gates, hell's flames? Oh yeah. Okay. So, so again, here's another place where like, for me, there was also the sensation of hypocrisy, which feels really uncomfortable. All I want to do is live my life in a way that feels like it's in alignment with my highest self and my deepest, wisest self. So I'm performing in the like church auditorium version of heaven's gates, hell's flames. And I'm delighted because I'm an adolescent. I'm like maybe 12, but I get to play a teenager, but I get to play a teenager who gets into a car accident because we're all drinking and you know where we went, Jill, don't you? Everybody went to hell. That's right. We went to hell, Jill. You know, for those who aren't familiar with this, this was a form of theater that happened um, in churches that was uh, scenarios that were acted out of people that are, it, it you know, scenarios acted out in different situations. And then these, you know, some people went to hell and some people went to heaven and, and it was all very, um, theatrical and, and, and it was always done in conjunction with presentations kind of done in conjunction with Halloween, wasn't it? Yes. And then there's like that all call to the altar. So it's like playing on fear and um, theater. And then at the end, it's like, so if you're scared of going to hell, we got something for that. Yeah. Which is 10% of your uh, income for the rest of your life. Come, come join our church and get saved. Wow. And again, like, I'm not going to hurt anybody's ears by like doing my, um, my Jamaican air horn, but like, pew, pew, here we go. And then yeah. you just come join our church and we're going to like w- scrub you clean. Right. Right. Yeah. We can, we can, um, we can inoculate you from all of that. Unselling um, your soul. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So when did your faith begin to reform itself and, and why did you go back to it? 
I'm so happy that you asked that question. Um, I, I don't know how many of your listeners would be very familiar with adult children of alcoholics or adult children of family dysfunction. 12-step mutual support pr- programs have um, coming to believe that there have to be powers greater than yourself in this world, just for the simple fact that if you look in the mirror and you are the most powerful being in the world, it's the loneliest, most painful place to be. Right. And as it relates to what your concept of God is, that part, they're like, it's up to you, figure it out. Or I, I think, so then the difference becomes ask questions. Whereas right. when I was growing up, there was no, there were no questions for the asking. You right. didn't pray for yourself. You prayed for other people. You didn't pray for what you wanted. You prayed uh, to stop being so sinful. And um, all of a sudden- Or to repent like, for being sinful. Wait, what? Or to repent or for repent, being- Or to repent, that's right. And so um, being introduced to this idea that um, I could imagine the God of my own understanding, but I needed to- not needed to, but the invitation, let's say instead, the invitation is to open my mind to the possibility that I want a higher power that loves me. Mm-hmm. I want to imagine. So there's a lot of like peeling that apart for our listeners. If you have never been um, acclimated or acquainted with adult children of alcoholics, adult children of family dysfunction, that literature is available online on Amazon, the world service organization. I think it's like adultchild.org, that yellow workbook can save your life. And part of what it is doing is helping you break that through that denial. Because I believe now, um, you know, years later, I believe that at our core, we are basically good. Mm-hmm. And I believe that at our core, underneath some of our deepest wounding is where we connect and we hook in to um, faith. And so your faith took what form then it didn't, it didn't take the shape of a Southern Baptist. I suspect you got it, Jill. So (laughs) I did go to church a little bit. Actually, one of the first people who ever reintroduced me to like, God is love. Um, and she's deceased now, but my beloved sister, Marcy Romine, who is a Catholic nun, um, a Franciscan nun. And where I met her was working at an HIV AIDS nonprofit. She wanted to work there so bad because she loved working with HIV positive folks. And, but as a Catholic nun, she's not allowed to like physically give out birth control. So she calls her, I don't know if he's like father superior or what she told me the story. And she was like, father, I just really want to help people that are suffering. And he was like, sister, if you don't have to hand the condoms out yourself, I don't see a problem with it. And she was like, <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> and so she got to, um, she got to help bring people who had felt so rejected by the church because of their queerness and because of their HIV status. Um, she got to help them feel and connect um, with love. So we all went to her funeral and we all are kind of telling each other, well, you know, I kind of felt like I had a special relationship with sister Marcy and it turned out she made every person she ever interacted with feel that way. Wow. And so if I can imagine like God working in my life through other people, she's who I think about. Yeah. You know, and I've heard it said, you know, many, many times, but that you may be the only Jesus somebody sees today, which means you may be the only form of perfect love or as close to perfect love as can get that somebody reaches every day. You That may be you. And, um, and that's the, the possibility of, of faith blossoming from that is pretty, pretty cool. The other thing I want to bring up, and I think this is just going to speak, listen, Jill, have me back and we can talk about cultural, historical trauma, uh, monotheism, and how uh, settler colonialism and white supremacy, European supremacy and monotheism go together like <laughs> peanut butter and jelly. Uh, we talk about that a little bit on, yep. on my podcast and I'll, I'll name drop that in a second. Oh, I might've lost the thread. Here we go. The problem with hierarchical leadership, Jill, is that the higher up you go, the lonelier you are, the sicker you become because you don't have any oversight, Mm -hmm. right? So one of the reasons that the church has become this really sick system is because it isn't circular leadership, which means that it isn't the community. Good churches should have good boards. 
Good right. boards should be representative of those people who go to that church. But mm-hmm. even then, interminable service positions can lead you to get egotistical in a way where you think it's okay for you to make big decisions for other people when frankly, you're a servant of the people. So right. again, I'm going to circle back to this idea around the 12-step and mutual support, which is that circular leadership means that power positions are service positions and you abdicate them soon such that you don't let that make you sick and make right. you think that you're like the queen of the ACA meeting. Or like, if, if it weren't for you, that Al-Anon that brought the coffee every week to that Al-Anon meeting, then everything would fall apart. It's when we get into that sort of grandiosity is when we start to do damage. And right. so if we think about like some of the, the deep pain and harm that uh, organized religion has caused in this world, I look at that as a problem with hierarchy, with hierarchical leadership. The higher up you move, the less oversight you have, the lonelier you are. The lonelier you are, the sicker you get. Right. And then it just becomes a petri dish of of your own thoughts and your own your own um just inadequacies and and all of those things. And it and it grows bad stuff. Yeah, I think you're muted. Yeah, I was just agreeing with you because like I also I also get so like sometimes I'm just like, oh, yeah, as you're talking. So I'm really trying to like give give space for back and forth. Um, yeah, no, we could talk about this forever. But also, yeah. I know that you've got some questions you want to you want to get to today. Oh, yeah. Well, we're just talking. So so what do you think qualifies as uh, spiritual abuse or religious abuse? Where do we get where where is that line there? That's such a great question. Um, And I want to describe it as I do on my own podcast often. Uh, It's essentially like concentric circles of the same thing. What you're going to look like, what you're looking for is A, why is there punishment? Right? Mm -hmm. Does it make any sense? Uh, What is discipline about? I've heard someone describe to me that discipline. Uh, is a way you could describe it as being the disciple of your own wisest self. But if we conflate discipline as like punishment, punishment, punishment. So if, and uh, Tabitha Birdweaver, my counterpart, and I do a whole podcast about religious and cult abuse. And one of the things that she says is one of the ways you can tell if it's abusive, what happens if you ask questions? Yes. That's one of the, that's, that is like, how do I know if it's abuse question mark? Well, what happens if you ask questions? And if you can already go, oh, you don't do that. That's going to, that's going to be pretty good evidence um, for the fact that you might be in an abusive situation. Right. Um, it's transparency. Um, and I would say related to abuse, again, I'm going to circle back around to like, what is religious abuse? Transactional love. hmm Love that is either given or withheld based on behavior or performance, how much you donate, how much you don't, uh, are you good? Are you bad? Um, and how often, I, how often you frequent the building and, and how right. often you participate in, in right. the offerings yeah. there. So if there's something about earning it, you want to look at that. How do you know it's religious abuse? Well, do you have to earn it? Um, and Love so if it, as it relates to like, I would also say religious abuse. Um, you can really watch for like, where are people picking and choosing from their religious text? Mm. If those pieces of script, right? If you look at the whole thing, you're like, okay, yeah, that story. This is a story meant to help you figure out how to be a more decent person. I like the Bible for that reason. I took the Bible as literature in college and I loved that class. Um, But if someone is picking and choosing pieces of the Bible and saying, here is evidence for why we just can't accept these types of people. We just can't allow, you know, uh, people, you know, to do this, that, and the other. Um, And I I hate to say this and it depends on how 
no, I don't hate to say this. I'll just give it a preface. Depending on how advanced someone is in their healing process, you can feel it in your body. Mm -hmm. How do you know it's harmful to you? You can feel it. Right. Right. In early trauma recovery, um, if you, if you found yourself in any way, if this is relatable to you out there that's listening, if you found yourself in any way addicted to chaos, you see a dumpster fire as you're walking by and you're like, Ooh, <laughs> let me jump in there. Um, then in the beginning, when I say, you know, you can feel it in your body, people are like, feels familiar. Let me go jump in there. But the right. longer you, you treat your trauma, trauma, the, the better attuned you are to your own internal life. Um, if you feel like you don't have any ground underneath your feet Mm -hmm. when you're trying to express how you feel and what you need, either in a relationship or in a religious relationship, Mm -hmm. a spiritual relationship. I I would ask you to use your like sense. Yeah. That's a safe place for you. So you talk a lot about, or you, you, I know you talk a lot about core beliefs, how, how much of our core belief do you believe is kind of in general based around faith? And I'm not talking about a specific faith, but I'm talking about faith as a, as a big, a big bucket. How, how much of our core belief is, is wired around faith? That is such a huge and juicy topic and question. So I'll, I'll do the very best that I can. I will also express to you that one of the things that changed my life and my spiritual life was advanced integrative therapy, both being the recipient of it and being the, um, being now an AIT certified therapist. You can go to the advanced integrative therapy Institute's website and find an AIT therapist near you. Give me a short definition of what it's about. It is a somatic trauma treatment that starts with the core belief or the trauma, depending on what the protocol you're using. And then you move your hand. This is the somatic component. You move the hand through the dominant energy centers in your body. As you repeat this phrase, what you're essentially working to do is like break the strength of this unconscious belief so that you can start looking at it like a thought instead of a fact, a core belief, like it's not safe to be healed Mm. or a core belief. Like I can't surrender to the divine. Right. If you've been hurt or harmed by faith, then the idea that like your life is happening according to plan can make you so mad, so hurt, so sad. Like, then who is this God cat that knew all of this stuff was happening to me? How could this possibly be? But um, Dr. Asha Clinton, who is just a really brilliant woman, she was a Jungian. She, well, she was, she's still alive. She was a Jungian psychoanalyst, but also like an energy psychology and like energy therapist. And one day she was like, ding, this is how this works. It kind of occurred to her in the bathtub. And she was like, okay, this is how we're going to help people break the strength of these beliefs that sometimes Jill can feel so real. It's like as real as the couch I'm sitting on. Mm-hmm. People aren't safe, which is why I create a false self to interact with them. Or um, God doesn't love me. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's not true. Right. But if I try to say to someone, well, that's not true. God loves you. You are inherently lovable. And then they'll go, well, one of us must be crazy because these two beliefs can't coexist at the same time. Right. Um, core beliefs shape our entire world. Mm-hmm. They shape our upbringing. They shape our entire world. So in brief, what advanced integrative therapy has a whole huge ton of space for is divine, um, like divine reattachment protocol. After you like kind of scrub out the wound from early childhood and from attachment, then it's like there's divine disconnection. You treat the divine disconnection. So then you can strengthen and fill up the space with divine reattachment. Whatever the divine or whatever faith means to you isn't really any of my business. But to bring it back from like a a psychological or an evolutionary psychology perspective, being able to conceive of things higher, greater than ourselves was a massive evolutionary jump for us as homo sapiens, because it also gave us the ability to do things like plan. Is the sun getting up tomorrow? Yes, because it did it yesterday. Uh Um, 
Does rain falling from the sky mean that we get water? Yes, we'll plan for that happening at this particular time of year. Okay, so then as we continue to evolve, our need for a God that we can submit to is going to need to evolve as well. Hmm. So a, a sun God worked fine, you know, six, 7,000 years ago. And if we have higher, more highly evolved brains today, um, we might need to make space for like a more complicated concept of, um, of God. But right. for me, you know, this seems like such a platitude, but the greatest of all of these is love. Mm-hmm. But, yes. So core beliefs are deeply rooted core beliefs are barriers to an intimate relationship with yourself and with the world. But there are also deeply rooted core beliefs that are good, that are healthy and life-giving. You know, they're not all bad. I'm so glad you said that. Listen, I'm a CPTSD therapist. And when you're a hammer, all you see is nails. When you're a CPTSD (laughs) therapist, all you see is complex post-traumatic stress. Thank you, Jill. Yes. So like a core belief, like I'm worthy of love or a core belief, like no matter a situation, I can learn from it. I believe that other people are doing their best and I can still leave something that isn't healthy. Like, Mm -hmm. even though that's kind of a long one, that can be like a core belief. And it essentially becomes then like your value system Mm -hmm. that you move through the world. Yeah. Yeah. So go back to complex trauma. Um, how do you begin to identify, I, I walk into your office and I say, I've got, you know, major depressive disorder. I've got an anxiety disorder. I've got all this. How do you begin to say, okay, maybe this is actually a case of complex trauma. How do you, how do you kind of ferret that out? I'm going to listen to the way you talk about yourself. And then I'm going to ask you who taught you how to talk that way. Interesting. That's a short, short answer. Cause I'll have people come in and I'm like, tell me about your family. Tell me about your family history. And they'll be like, oh, my parents, they're so great. They, um, they, they, this, they, that I'm so lucky to have them. They're still alive. And then over the course of an hour and a half, this person is going to continue to call themselves lazy, stupid, ungrateful. And I'm like, Ooh, so my, my little Fox ears are starting to break up and I'm like, then who taught you how to talk that way about yourself? So another, maybe more complicated way to describe this is I need to find out whose narrative you're telling. Because if it's yours, Jill, then it's going to have like a little of this, a little of that. And maybe you can tell me that your parents were doing their best. And I'll, I'm like, yeah, of course, I believe that. But if you don't tell me anything about like the things that didn't work so well in your childhood, that's actually also the cue for me. When someone comes in and they're like, here's how I'm suffering in present day. And I'm like, okay, anything happened in your rear view? And they're like, no. It's like this kind of Barbie head popped off of the body. And I'm like, anything, uh, anything like, and they're like, no, (laughs) Um, I'm like, okay, well, we'll, we'll see. I I just um, love, I just love that that entry point to trying to figure out what is going on is a question. It's an invitation to share what the content of you is. Well, and there's, um, that's, that's one of the things that's um, so hard about treating CPTSD. So much of what's happening is often subtle, not always. I know that there are going to be listeners who have had really horrific things happen to them. And there's just no question whether or not that was abusive. And if it was abusive and it was chronic and it was happening over time, then we're going to call it complex post-traumatic stress disorder. In my practice, who I'm helping are the folks who are like in this really confused place because the things that were the subtly neglectful jabs or the absence, their own parents' dissociation, uh, the shame, the worthlessness, the failure, the perfectionism, it never rose to the level of making a, a child protective services call. So this person comes into my office and they go, Beth, I literally have no idea why every time my partner asks me if we can talk about this thing that my throat closes up. Oh, yeah. I literally feel like I have just sunk into a hole that has opened up inside of me. Absolutely. And that's, that's, so that's the proprioceptor sense. That's the somatic 
indicator for me that like, you never, nobody ever taught you how to resolve conflict safely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, you are doing some work with a podcast called the Complex PTSD Podcast, right? CPTSD Podcast, that's right. Uh, Tabitha Bird-Weaver, who is my colleague and fellow AIT therapist, uh, that's how we found each other. We were in AIT trainings together and we both just love, love advanced integrative therapy because of how extraordinarily life-changing it is. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, we were just chatting one day and I was like, well, we should do a podcast. And she was like, yeah, why not? And uh, her treasured husband is our, is our editor and go-to admin person. Um, And we, we just love it. It's really for those folks who feel like um, they're in that place where like, could this be me? Could this be me? Or maybe someone has said, have you considered that this is complex post-traumatic stress? Have you considered that this is attachment trauma? And then you go like, what? Because you're saying, you know, it took things falling apart for you to finally be like, okay, well then the way I have been doing things is impossible to maintain. Right. Right. But you, you can, um, you can boil yourself alive at like a slow simmer over the course of a lifetime with perfectionism, workaholism, binge drinking on the weekends, uh, codependent relationships, stressing yourself with finances. And then one day you wag your finger at your kid and you look down at your finger and you go, I have become my father. And then you're like, oh no. And then the wheels come off. <laughs> yeah. And it's so painful. Oh my gosh. It's so yeah. painful. And, um, you know, I, I just have, uh, so we, we do that for all the folks who are like, I don't even know what this means again, because if someone has ever said to you, you're making a big deal out of something that isn't a big deal. Or if somebody says, don't you know how many starving children would be so, oh, Jill just rolled her eyes for all the listening audience out there. Don't you know how many people would be so grateful? And like, that's crummy, but, and and it by itself one time, if I'm like trying a new tool to get you to finish your dinner, whatever. But like, if you spend a lifetime essentially having your emotional life be diminished, right? when the day comes that you really need help, you really need a specialist, you're telling yourself, well, this isn't a big deal. There are people who, you know, there are people who had really abusive situations. There are people who were really sexually abused. And then, had- and then the shooting comes in. Well, I should be able to get through this. I should be able to manage this. I should, I should be able to take care of myself. Right. Yeah. Which, is, yeah. which is a whole level of craziness. Yeah. And one of the things I like to remind my clients um, is if you are the person who is admitting you're in pain, in your family system, you may be the healthiest one. That's right. That's because right. denial, dissociation, these are these are not real life coping strategies, which is to say, I'm sorry, I don't mean real life. They're real. You do them. Uh, they're not functional because if dissociating worked, do you know what this podcast would be called? The dissociation podcast. You know right. what people would hear when they came into my office? Have you tried pushing it down further and <laughs> pretending like it isn't happening? Listen, if it worked, yeah, I'll be doing it. And it doesn't. It makes right. you sick. Right. So how do people find um, the podcast? Yeah, you can. We're on anywhere that you can find a podcast. Uh, the CPTSD podcast is there. Um, so Apple podcasts and Spotify, we also have a Google website. And if you just internet search the CPTSD podcast, you can find myself, you can find Tabitha Bird Weaver, you can find like our own, um, separate websites and ways you can connect and get in contact with us. Um, sooner than later, I'm going to have like an online coaching business. Uh, but I think it's probably going to have more to do with things like education and like continuing education for therapists less so than like, you know, life coaching. Right. Okay. At the end of the day, when someone's ready to do that, waking up, then the wheels are in motion. And I think that for me is like where faith really comes into my clinical practice. Uh, The relief that comes that when someone's sitting on the other side of the office for me, I feel truly in my body that they have their own higher power. And I believe that they are on the path, whatever is the path for them. And I'm not the expert in the room. It's only my job to just help them peel away the layers so that they can get in touch with their own most authentic self. Right. That, that is who is expert. Right. 
I like that. Well, um, we will put the links up on our website um, so people can um, find out information about about you and and follow you. And thank you so much for your time. And I just want to say that you are the last guest of season three. So you have you have rounded out the the end of the year for me. So thank you so much for being my guest and thanks for sharing. I appreciate it. Jill, it's been so fun. Yeah, I'll come back anytime and talk about all of the little rabbit trails that we had uh, we had talked about. <laughs> all the little hanging chads we left. <laughs> That's right. All right. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. You can find Jill at JillRiley.com, on Facebook at JillRiley.author, Twitter at JillRileyAuthor, and Instagram at JillRiley.author. Also, feel free to send Jill an email at jill at jillreilly.org. Thanks for listening in and have a great day.